0: Jesus, we lift you up this morning. God, in the midst of all the things that we can worship today, we choose you. God, we want our lives to be shaped by your will. God, by your invitation. God, reveal to us all the ways we are just choosing other gods to worship. God, reveal to us all the ways that we are just sort of doing our own thing rather than submitting ourselves to your will. God, for your glory. God, we come before you broken creatures and needing healing, needing redemption, needing your mercy. God, in your mercy, come draw near that you might be glorified and we might be transformed in your presence. Pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Good to worship with you. It's My hope and prayer that God shows up as we worship. Something about song just sort of can kind of get in. So my hope and prayer is that in, in worship, in singing, as we are together, that God shows up and meets you. If we haven't met, my name is Tony, I have the privilege and the pleasure of being here on staff at Wellspring. Now, I do want to say that like many of you, or unlike many of you, I didn't grow up reading the Bible a ton. So if I'm honest, when I first started really reading the Bible in college, I was pretty confused. I remember there being portions of the Old Testament that I read and having to go to my dorm mate, Dave, who always was around, right? He had two spiritual gifts. The first one is he never left his room. So he was always there. Number two, he knew a ton about the Bible. So I would go to him almost every day, just pestering him with question after question. The truth is, now that I've read the Bible a number of times, through these, I still have questions. It's not like Dave, or my master's degree, or my doctorate for that matter, answered every question I have. And I think most of us relate to this. We have all kinds of questions about the Bible. And our hope at Wellspring is that we sort of dig into these questions, right? We work our way through books so that we have a better and deeper understanding of the Scriptures. Right? That's why we worked through a chunk of Acts when we first started our replant, Right, we've gone through all of John, all of 1 Corinthians, and we've t- learned a ton about God and His kingdom and what does it mean to practice the way of Jesus. But we haven't done a ton of work in the Old Testament up to this point. We spent a little time in Ruth. You know. We've dabbled a bit. My hope, though, is this next year is to spend a bunch of time marinating in the stories of the Old Testament. Now, we won't go every chapter. We won't hit every chapter and every verse and every story. And actually, one of our primary goals is actually to help us see how the stories and verses and chapters in the Old Testament connect to the larger story of the Scriptures. Now, a little orientation might be helpful. So, uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, I would invite you, I'll give you a second, go run into the room next door or whatever it is and go grab it off your shelf. Because I want to I do something quick just to orient us. So, I'll give you a second. You know, a little countdown. Feel free to run wherever you need to go and get that Bible and then come back. I'm guessing, you know, about now you're maybe getting close. All right. So this is the idea. If you flip open your Bible, what you'll notice is there's a table of contents, right, in the first few pages. And you'll notice there's tons of these books in the Old Testament, but they're not really organized, at least clearly organized, if you just look At the table of contents. But there's actually four sections in the Old Testament that I kind of want to orient us to. The first section is actually the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, if you want to, you can actually draw a little line after Deuteronomy just to sort of orient, right? That's section one. Now, there's a next section is called the Histories, and this is Joshua through Esther. So you have the Torah or the Pentateuch, then you have the Histories, that's Joshua through Esther. Then the third section is Job through Song of Psalms, and this is like the poetry or the wisdom literature of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And then the fourth section is the Prophets, that's Isaiah through Malachi. This is how our English Bibles, our English Old Testament is organized. And I want to start on, you know, we're going to start in the Torah Specifically, we're going to start in Genesis, and we're going to start in Genesis, in Genesis 1. But before I dive in, I just want to make sure we're sort of on the same page. Because often in the modern Western church, we approach Genesis 1 primarily to answer our questions about the age of the earth, whether Darwin was right or wrong, or we use Genesis 1 as sort of like a sword, right, to defend against attacks, against creation, And obviously, right, Genesis 1 has a lot to say about those things, no doubt. But this morning, actually, I want to focus on Genesis 1 and try and focus on what it might have meant in its original context, right? So for folks reading it in this ancient period, how would they have read and understood Genesis? And then I also want to take themes that are developed in Genesis 1 and then they are unpacked throughout the rest of Scripture, now, if we're going to start in Genesis 1, we're going to start with Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, right? In the beginning. I think many of us are familiar with this phrase, right? John and Mark start their Gospels with it, but we might not appreciate how this word in Hebrew, beginning, is often paired with the word End. So, in fact, when ancient readers would have read Genesis 1-1, right, in the beginning, they would have anticipated an end to the story. It would have been foreshadowed in the very first words of the Old Testament. They hint at a finale. Right? So, it shouldn't surprise us, Anne, that the prophets are often looking towards the future, It shouldn't surprise us that in Revelation 22, which is almost the very end of the Bible, there's all these references back to Genesis 1. The end, right, referring back to the beginning. And this forward-looking expectation is baked into the beginning. The author continues, right, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So often, though, in the West, we imagine God as an idea that we either believe in or we don't. But Genesis 1-1 reminds us that God is not an idea, right? God acts. God creates. He does things. This is the first thing we learn in the Bible. God acts. In his utter freedom and sovereignty, he creates heaven and earth, the earth and the sky. What this also means is that when you go out your door and you look at the ocean or you look at a tree, everything becomes a living reminder of the God who created everything. Think about that. Every time you go out your day, everything around you screams at you, I was made by the God of the universe. Everything is a living icon of the sovereign and free and great God that we worship. Right? And then Genesis 1-2 tells us about the process of creation. Right, The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Without form and void in Hebrew are... Tohu and Bohu. And basically what they're pointing to is that there was total chaos at the beginning. And this is important. Because one of the major themes of Genesis 1 is how God brings good order out of chaos. And It's interesting, actually, because if you look at the Torah, right, which is that first chunk, the first five books of the Bible, the, the author of Deuteronomy picks up on this theme at the end of Deuteronomy which sort of is like a bookend, right? You have Genesis and Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 32.10, the same imagery is used. As Israel waits in the wilderness before entering the promised land, the author says that the land is tohu in the wilderness before they enter the good land or the promised land. Notice the similarity. You have tohu and bohu, then God creates good. Now, that's in Genesis. End of Deuteronomy, the end of the Torah, right? The author picks up on the same themes. In the wilderness, there is Tohu, which then leads to, right, the good land that God is providing. You'll also notice in Deuteronomy 32, right, in Genesis 1:2 it says that God is hovering over the waters. Genesis 32-11, God is like an eagle, same word, hovering over the nest of its young. Now, my point in sharing this is just to help you see that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are actually a literary, literary unit and that they connect in a really unique way. They're intentionally written. Now, as we move into verses 3 and 4, we enter the first day, and the author writes, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now first, I want us to notice how God creates. Right? He speaks. And this is important. Right? God's words have a unique ability to create and make things. They have a life of their own. Right? It's why we spend so much time on Sundays going into the Scriptures, God's word to us. Because we believe they have a similar ability to create life in us. It's why we have groups at Wellspring on listening to God's voice, because we know that when we hear it, it changes us. It's why the prophets are often saying stuff like, and the Word of God came to Isaiah. It's why Jesus is called the Word of God in John 1.1, because when we enter His presence, He makes us into new creations. second, I want you to notice that the first thing that God brings into existence, right, is light, right? God is the one who brings light into darkness, right? During Advent, Aaron spoke about this, right? Isaiah picks up on it as God is the one who brings light into darkness. It's also why Jesus calls himself the light of the world, because what we see in the scriptures is that God's presence almost becomes synonymous with light. Because what does God do? Right? He brings light into the world. Third, after God makes light, then he tells us right, that what he sees, that what he has made is good. Right? And this phrase will be repeated throughout Genesis 1. Each day, God makes something. He looks at it and says, whoa. That's really good. And we also need to notice this idea of seeing gets picked up in Genesis as well. When we get to the flood, God no longer saw the good, but rather he saw that human evil was great upon the land. And in Genesis 3, 6, Eve Eve saw the tree was good. Right? God sees the good He has made in chapter 1, and then the woman sees the good in chapter 3. One leads to the creation of a home. The other leads to tragedy. And we'll unpack this in the next few weeks. Notice also that on the first day, God separates darkness and light. And in the days to follow, He'll separate the upper and the lower waters. He'll separate day and night. And what's important to know here is that God is the God who separates and divides. And this idea is picked up in the Torah, right? This is the same God who separates for himself a people that will uniquely be his people in the world, right? He is the God who in the law separates clean and unclean, holy and profane. Wenham, who's a theologian in the Word Biblical Commentary, writes, the implication, though not stated, is clear. What God has distinguished and created distinct, man not ought to confuse. We need to recognize in Genesis 1 that there is an intentional order to creation. right Away from the tohu and bohu, the total chaos, Right, there's a conviction baked into Genesis 1 that things are the way they are because God made it so. Right, and men and women should accept this. Right, in point of contrast, right, in our world we think the individual gets to decide how to understand the world, how to design the world. The individual is in the center. But in Genesis 1, right, God is in the center. He's the one who designs our world for us to live in. Right? That it is a world set for human habitation is clear on the third day in verses 9 through 13, which is all about God dividing the water and the dry land. Now, in the ancient mind, this is a key and pivotal step towards human habitation, right? Away from the Tohu and Bohu of Genesis 1 2. Right? God is separating the waters, making a space for humans to live. And again, now connecting this idea through the Torah, right, this theme of God moving water to make dry land for people becomes an ongoing theme. Right? It's what happens after the flood. God raises the water, then He lowers the water, and what happens? Humans have a place to live. Right? And then in the Red Sea, Right? What does God do? He parts the Red Sea so that there's dry land, so that humans can pass over into a good and dry place for them to live. Right? In all three accounts, the water is an obstacle to humanity's inhabiting dry land. Right? The water must be removed for the human beings to enjoy God's gift of the land. Now again. The reason I'm pointing this out is I want us to see that Genesis 1 is setting the stage for all these stories to come. That it's foreshadowing. And right as we move in the Scriptures, these themes get picked up and used and echoed back. Now, as we shift from day 3 to day 4, I want to draw your attention to the flow of Genesis 1 through 6. Often we think of it as this, like, linear progression, God did this, and then God did this, right? As this six-day linear progression. But actually might be more helpful to think of it as poetic symmetry. On days one through three, God makes stuff. He creates things. And then on days four through six, he fills in what he has made. And as we wade into the fourth and fifth days, it's important to note the author is actually distinguishing this creation story from all the other Near Eastern creation myths, right? Day four is all about the sun and the moon, which were key gods in the Near Eastern world, right? And the stars were often credited with controlling human destiny. And here the author of Genesis is saying, hey guys, the sun and the moon and the stars, they're simply creations of the true God, And on day five, we get living creatures. And if you notice in verse 21, there's this great sea creature mentioned, which is again important. Because according to Babylonian creation myths, the the gods, they slay this serpent, this huge serpent. And the serpent's body, dead body, becomes the way through which, right, the earth is made, like grows out of the serpent's dead body. But here, right, God doesn't fight with a Leviathan. He creates him. The serpent isn't God's rival. It's merely one of his creations, right? Genesis 1 is pointing to the bigness of God compared to all the other gods that could be worshipped. Day 5 is also the first day in the creation account that the notion of blessing appears in verse 22. And you'll notice, right, this theme goes through throughout the Bible. Blessing is one of the great unifying themes of Genesis. God blesses animals, right, here in 22. He'll bless humankind in 28. He'll bless the Sabbath in 2-3. He'll bless Adam in 5-2. He'll bless Noah in 9-1. And He will frequently bless Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in many ways, the story of Genesis actually can be described or narrated as the fulfillment of God's blessing here in Genesis 1, right? The earth is filled with animals and humans in Genesis 1. And then after the flood, it's filled again. And then God blesses Abraham and Sarah with descendants that are more than the stars in the sky, right? The blessing of God shapes the story. Which then brings us to day six, on which God says, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, verse 26. And then continues in 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, it's really important here that we understand how this would have been understood contextually. right? In both ancient Egyptian and Assyrian texts, the king is described as the image of of God, right? He represents God's interests on earth. this is true in Assyrian and Egyptian texts. Additionally, uh, near eastern kings and gods, right, they'd make images of them. And these images would be worshiped because those images were meant to sort of represent the God or king, right, that they were trying to worship. And this helps us understand what Genesis is trying to communicate. Right, to be made in God's image is to call humanity God's representative on earth. Right, While the other creatures are made according to their kind, you remember that feel? Right, they're all made according to their kind. The account of human, humankind, creation, says that humans are made according to the likeness of God. But what's different here is while the Egyptian writers spoke of kings and kings alone being the image bearers of God. According to Genesis 1, it's not just the king, but every man and every woman that bears God's image in the earth, in the world. Let that sink in a little bit. When you go shop for groceries, when you drive to work, when you talk with coworkers and engage with your family, you are bearing the image of God. Wherever you go, you are God's representative. It's pretty profound. And it also helps us understand the larger arc of the Bible. Because one way of telling the story of the Bible is to say that God created humankind as his image bearers in Genesis 1, right? That then gets adopted by the people of Israel, but instead of bearing God's image, they decide to go their own way, leading to the exile. And then God sends his own image, Jesus, to earth, right? To fulfill this idea of bearing the image of God, which Jesus does. And then he rescues us as his wayward image bearers, And then Paul says in Romans 8, right, to conform into the likeness of his son. So in the New Testament, what Jesus is doing is fulfilling the call of Genesis 1 and then cleaning us off to make us actual image bearers in the church to carry God's will in the world to be his representatives. It's also important to know in verse 27, right, humanity is created specifically Male and female. What's interesting is the author considered it super important to talk about gender when it came to humanity, but it hasn't featured one time in the narrative up to this point so far, which I think is meant to communicate something, right? Remember, God is the designer. So God intentionally makes humans male and female. And if you look at the grammar of verse 27 in Hebrew, what you notice is that men and women image God together. Right? And then we switch into verse 28. This idea of being God's representatives and image bearer then sheds light on God's command to subdue and rule. Right? Because we are made in God's image, we're invited to rule the world on God's behalf as His stewards. But we need to be careful here, because this is not a free ticket to exploit all that God has made. God has just said, man, I made good stuff on every day. Do you think then God would set us out to destroy what He has made? Absolutely not. Contextually also, Near Eastern kings, right, as image bearers, were expected to care for their subjects especially the most vulnerable. Similarly, humankind is invited to rule and subdue, but as a benevolent king, acting as God's representative over his good works. Now, as we move to from 28 to 29 and 30, the author of Genesis sort of says this statement that I think many of us skip over. We just don't even think about it. That God provides food for humankind and not the other way around. And you might be thinking, yeah, so? (laughs) Like, who cares? Well, it's actually kind of important. You see, there's this Babylonian epic of creation that involves a great war among the gods. And the losing gods are forced to make a temple for the victorious gods. And once it's done, the victorious gods realize, right, that maintaining the temple is this elaborate process of sacrifices and it takes a lot of time and it's cutting into their leisure. They just want to chill out and now they have to maintain this huge temple so they can get food from the sacrifices. So they have this brilliant idea. Let's create a new race, human beings, to do all this temple maintenance and get us our food, which then makes the account of Genesis 1 so much different. Right? God provides the food. Right? Humans aren't slaves. We are God's image bearers. And what happens next is even more incredible. Genesis 2.2 says that God rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. Then in verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Now, it's important to read this in light of the Babylonian Cretan myth, right? In contrast to and likely in protest against the Babylonian myth, right? Humans begin life with a day off, a holiday shared with God, right? They're not slaves in a temple. They're invited to vacation with God on the seventh day. And this shapes the way the Hebrew people understand their relationship with God, right? Later, Israel will actually remember the seventh day as a Sabbath, right? They will remember and relive every single week the day when they took a breather with God. They will remember, right, that they joined God on that first Sabbath. Some theologians wonder if this is one of the reasons, this sort of personal connection, is one of the reasons that God does not use the impersonal third-person let there be, right, when he makes humans. Did you notice that? Instead, he chooses, right, the more personal, first person, let us make humankind, right, male and female. And some theologians think this signals that God wants to actually be in relationship with us. You might also notice that there's no evening on the seventh day, which I think suggests that the ending of the biblical story, right, implied in the beginning is meant to be a forever rest in God's presence. It brings to mind one of my favorite quotes of Augustine's, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Right? What Genesis 1 is telling us is that we're not meant to be slaves in the temple of the God's. But we are creatures created by God for relationship. We are made in his image as representatives. We are meant to enjoy God forever. Now, I think one way to apply this in everyday life, I was trying to think of like, what is something we can do? I think the first thing that I think would make so much sense, and maybe the only thing, maybe the main thing we can do this week, is I just think we should take a little time, each of us, cut out a window and just go down to the ocean. Find a rock or a spawn on a beach and simply reflect on the fact that God in the beginning made everything. Just sit in the presence of our sovereign and great creator God. Sit in the bigness of that. Look out at the ocean and just realize how big God is as our world is just going through so many troubles. Remember the bigness of our creative and sovereign God. Maybe as you look out at the ocean, remember that God separated the dry land from the water in order to make a home for humanity so that you and I could have a good place to live. Maybe even just feel the rocks or feel the sand and remember, God made a home for me. Maybe just feel the earth beneath your feet and remember that it is an expression of God's love for you. Maybe take a moment while you're sitting on that rock and reflect on the fact that you are made in God's image. To be His representative. Maybe take a moment to reflect on how that's going. Right? Is, your, is your life a reflection of God or is it a reflection of your will? Of your preferences? Now, none of us are perfect. But my guess is, as we're sitting on the rock, God might give us some suggestions of how we could adjust. His speaking voice to us could create something new, a new invitation for us. Sitting on that rock, I wonder if we might reflect on whether we are accepting God's invitation to enter His rest. Or whether we're just operating like the slaves of the Babylonian gods? Are we remembering that we are invited by our God to be in relationship with Him? Are we remembering that He invited us to go on vacation, to rest, to take a day off with Him? Do we ever get off the treadmill and just enjoy the presence of our God? And what would it look like for you to slow down I might invite you as you go and sit on a rock or sit on the beach to bring your Bible. Maybe reread Genesis 1 or read Psalm 8 and just reflect on the bigness of God, right? That he, what he has made and how he's invited us, right? To be and bear his image in the world. As we close this morning, I just want to say a prayer for us that we would recognize the bigness of God and our calling. God, we ask this morning for you to show up, to reveal yourself as the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. You're not an idea. You are an active God who makes things, who by whose very voice brings life. God, may we hear that voice today. God, may we stop listening just to the voice in our own head that sort of keeps us on the treadmill, but when we listen to your voice, which transforms, which shapes, which creates. God, may we learn to enter your rest. May we be a people who trust in your faithfulness. God, that you designed our world intentionally. God, may we fall in love with you again. May we fall in love with your scriptures. God, we ask that you would show up and reveal yourself to us, that we might know you more. God, be with us, be with our church, be with our country, and be with our world. We need you, Lord. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Now, I want to, there's a number of things going on in the life of our body. I want to find ways for you to